You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. ...can use His Word, illuminate His Word to speak to, to, speak to us. And I uh, just want to clarify, there's a lot of different thoughts about that today, but we believe God has given us everything we need in His Word, and His Holy Spirit then shines a light on it for us, and I'm thankful for that. I'm praying that He'll do that for us this morning in 1 John. Last Sunday morning, our focus was on the last two verses of chapter 2 in the return of Christ. And we will all stand before God's judgment seat. We will all stand and be judged by Jesus Christ someday. I, I hope that you're ready for that inspection. And the way to be ready is to abide. If you don't abide, you'll be ashamed. If you do abide, then you can have confidence when he appears. And today's text really continues the thought of Christ's return. And at first I thought, well, that's going to be redundant because I, I don't want to focus on the same kind of thing two weeks in a row. Um, but first of all, I don't think we can be reminded too much about the second coming of Jesus Christ. We could probably talk about it every week and it, it may not still be enough because, friends, it could be imminent. It is imminent. It could be today. He could return today. And so I thought, well, we can't be reminded too often that he's coming. And then number two, I, as I worried about being redundant, I thought, well, I'm not the one that made the point back to back. So if you have an issue, just... Text John or something. So, number three, though, I thought this week's message, really, it has a different focus. Last week in the message, as we are preparing for the second coming of Christ, the word was abide, stay close to Jesus Christ so that you're ready for his return. But this week's application is different, yet it builds on that thought. See, John's readership here in the book of 1 John was surrounded by false teaching. And one of the major aspects or major sources of false teaching during this time was what's called Gnosticism. And you've probably heard people say that they might be agnostic, which means that they don't necessarily believe that there isn't a God. They believe that you can't know if there's a God. They're without knowledge. Well, Gnosticism really focused on the other end of that. And Gnosticism would have taught that you need to know as much as you can. You need to experience as much as you can. The Gnostics in John's day were teaching that a head knowledge was enough for salvation. They were teaching that if you know about the things of Christ, that's enough to save you. And that mindset produced many reasons to justify sin. What the Gnostics would say, they would say that the body was evil and that therefore there's no harm in satisfying its lust because what happened to it doesn't matter. They would say it burns up in the end, it doesn't matter anyway, uh, your body is, is temporary, there's no harm in satisfying its lusts. They would say that a, true, a truly spiritual man was so armored or so protected by the spirit that he could sin in his body to his heart's content and it wouldn't hurt him. Gnostics would say that the true, the true Gnostic was actually under obligation both to scale the heights of spirituality and to plumb the depths of sin so it could truly be said of him that he knows all things. Those were the kind of teachings that the Gnostics brought to the readership here in the book of John. First John, it helps us to understand a little bit then what he's trying to combat. He's trying to counter those things because they were teaching hedonism. 
They were teaching that you can live however you want, that you can eat, drink, and be merry because this body doesn't matter and, and you need to learn and experience everything anyway. And that's why a major theme is that there must be moral evidence of one's salvation. That's why John is writing to them saying, no, you've got to make sure that in your life there's proof, there's evidence of your salvation. And here's, if we could kind of sum up what John was trying to counter, he was saying this, a changed life is the mark of a true Christian. A changed life is the mark of a true Christian. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a what? He's a new creature. If you're saved, something should be different about you. There should be evidence. Romans 12.2 talks about a transformation taking place. If you one day are not saved, and you make a profession, and the next day nothing has changed then I won't be the one to judge that, but you ought to take a serious look. Because a, a changed life is the mark of true Christianity. You cannot claim to be a child of God without evidence of change. Well, why is that? Well, God is a righteous God. And if a person is truly part of the family, then they will reflect their father. And if God is holy, if God is righteous, if God exhibits these characteristics uh, of holiness and righteousness and purity and I am his child, then I naturally will bear the marks of my father. I will have family traits. That's what John's talking about. He's saying that our lives should get, give evidence uh, to our father in the same way that you can see a family resemblance in me and my son. In this, that same way, our father, the things that are important to him, his character, his holiness, his righteousness, it should be seen in us. And that's how John ends chapter 2. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. When the members of the family reflect their father, then we can look at their lives. And that's how we know they're born into the family. And that word born, I think, triggers something in John. It says again at the end of verse 29, everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. The idea of this new birth is a concept that John focuses on more than any other New Testament writer. Peter mentions it, Paul mentions it, mentions it, but not as much as John. John was very enamored, led by the Holy Spirit, to write about the new birth, but he didn't come up with the idea himself. Actually, Jesus Christ came up with the idea. Jesus Christ talked about it and John recorded it in his gospel. Here's what Jesus told Nicodemus. And maybe you remember this story. A religious leader named Nicodemus comes to Jesus Christ by night. Uh, he's a Pharisee and he comes under the cloak of darkness so as to not be seen. And he comes there. John wrote it over in chapter 3. And here's what Jesus tells Nicodemus. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, because that is strange language, right? I mean, we, we probably are used to the, the, the thought or the, the phrase born again, but Nicodemus had probably never heard that before. And so Nicodemus comes back with born again. He says, verily, verily, I say, no, he says, Nicodemus, how can a man be born when he is old? I mean, can he enter, I know this is weird, can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Well, Jesus answered and said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water, you're, you're born, your physical birth, and born of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Jesus Christ was teaching a very basic Christian doctrine here. Folks, let me just tell you this today from Jesus Christ's own words. In order to be part of God's family, you must be born again. And you say, well, that's weird language. I understand. But it's not talking about physical birth. It's talking about like what Jesus Christ talked about. That which is born of spirit is spirit. It's a spiritual birth. You must be born again. You must admit that you are a sinner and that you deserve to be separated from God forever in a place called hell. And I know that's not popular, but I'm just telling you what the Bible says. You must acknowledge that you can't pay for your sins, but that Jesus Christ came and died on a cross and paid for all of them. Then you must receive his payment as the only way to be made right with God again. You must be born again. If you are saved according to those truths that I just told you, that means that you're born again. Praise the Lord. You can be born again today. Let me just tell you this too. There are two kinds of people in this room today. Those that are born again and those that are not born again. And this message is for those that are born again. John is writing to children. The children, the family of God. And so let me just encourage you today. If you say, I'm not sure that I'm born again. I don't know that I've ever acknowledged my sin before Jesus Christ. I don't know that I've ever trusted in him as my savior, as the only way to go to heaven. I'm not sure that I've ever been born again. Well, today could be your spiritual birthday. Let me just encourage you at the end of the message today, if you've not been born again, to step forward and come talk to me or one of the men up front and make today the day that you're born again. This message, though, is for those that are born again and are part of the family. Jesus, or sorry, John uses the word Born, born six times in the book of 1 John. And he also uses the word begotten twice. And that describes someone who's also been born into the family. If they've been begotten, um, God's only begotten son, Jesus Christ. But we can be begotten into the family. John loves the concept of being born again. And his excitement for the new birth comes out. Not just in how much he writes about it, but in the way he writes about it. You can tell he's excited about it. See, after John mentions being born in verse 29, he says, he that do, everyone that doeth righteous, it, righteousness is born of him. Uh, his whole tone seems to change. He says, everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. And then suddenly he gets real excited. And he says, behold, behold. And that word behold means to see. It means to understand. It means to know. John is saying, just stop for a minute. And he says, behold what manner of love the Father. And what John is telling us to do is when he says, yeah, everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Now, let's just stop for a minute. Sometimes you just have to take a minute. You have to stop and you have to consider something. And what we're talking about, what John is talking about this morning is God's love. And I want you just to stop today. Don't just take for granted that you've been born again. Stop today and consider the love of your father. Stop and just take some time to look at it. We've been born into the family. Don't lose sight of the fact of how amazing it is that a holy, all-powerful God would allow me to be born into his family. When's the last time you stopped and just thought, That God is so holy, but I am so sinful. And yet God loves me so much that he lets me be born into his family. Does that excite you?
And I know I'm excited about it this morning. I've had a few days to think about it, but I hope you'll catch up. God didn't just bring us into the country. He brought us into his home. He didn't just bring us into his city. He didn't just bring us into his neighborhood. He didn't just put us in the house next to him. He didn't just friend us on Facebook. No, God brought us into his family. Behold, what manner of love. And that phrase, what manner, is is very interesting because the phrase literally means from what country. And I know that sounds a little strange, but that's what it means. Look it up in your Strong's Concordance, you Bible students out there. It means from what country. It refers to, it would be something that they would say in those days to refer to something that is foreign to them. Something completely foreign, a foreign concept to them. It refers to something so different in quality that it, it, that they, it would cause you to say something like, well, they're not from around here. And trust me, the last three months that I've lived in South Dakota, I think many folks in Sioux Falls at different times in my time here have said, he's not from around here. <laughs> I mean, when we drove around Sioux Falls for, for hours trying to find an open car wash, only to realize that down here or up here, they keep all the car wash doors closed. So we're like, they're all closed. You can't get any, in any of them. No, they were open. You just have to pay first. So we didn't know that. I mean, I've been hearing about this thing, this, this food called chislik. Never heard of that before. Is that even how you say it? I'm like, what is that? Well, everyone talks about it. Well, I don't, I don't know what it is. Brother Heath keeps saying crick. I'm not sure what that is. Is that a creek? Is that a body of water? Is that something that happens to your neck? I don't know. There's been many moments in my few months in Sioux Falls coming from Oklahoma where someone says, well, they're not from around here. It's pretty obvious. Well, that's, that's what, what manner means. This quality of God's love is so foreign that we can't help but think, where did this come from? This is not like anything I've ever seen. This is not from around here. And you say, well, what makes God's love so great? Why would you say what manner? Why would you say what country is that from? Well, for a start, for God, here's what, what some evidence of how, the, how God's love is so great. John 3.16, for God so loved that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever should believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You want to talk about love that's not from around here? Then talk about a love where a father would send his son to die on a cross for our sins. That's not from around here. Romans 5.8 But God commendeth or proved his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's not love you see around here very much. Ephesians 3.19, it says, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. That's the kind of love we're talking about today. Romans 8.37-39 says, nay, in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You talk about a love that is not from around here. God's love for sinners would make you say, what manner? We live in a world that lacks love, but we have a Father whose love is unlimited. 
The love of God is not of the world. It's not from around here. It's so much higher and so much better that we can't even wrap our minds around it. Ephesians 3, as I read, says, His love passeth our knowledge. Love is one of God's unique attributes. The Greek word for God's love is agape. It's unconditional, sacrificial love. It's the kind of love He displays. Friends, God's love is without boundaries. It can't be earned, but it surpasses your worst sins. You don't deserve God's love, and I don't deserve God's love, but he gives it freely and without hesitation. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. It's not from around here. It's a whole different level. And they might say in today's vernacular, it's next level. You know, you've probably experienced something next level before. I saw some pictures some of the men in our church who went to Alaska this week and caught fish. And, and, they, and I saw some videos and uh, Brother Troy and Brother Tom and some other men as well. And some of the, the landscape, the, the, they're, showing me, they're showing me pictures of the fish is what I saw. But I'm looking in the background at the mountains. And I'm thinking, that's next level. They, they, they're showing these pictures of these snow-capped mountains and and, and just where they were, it's unbelievable. It's next level. You've probably had something next level before. You go to a restaurant, and it's a level that you haven't been to before. You have a dessert. This is probably what really appeals to the ladies. Something chocolate is next level this morning. You go on some vacation. You have some experience that's next level. Let me just tell you, God's love is next level love. He's under no obligation Listen, he is under no obligation, yet with, yet with no limitation. He loved us with his son. What country? That's something else. And listen, if you've been the benefactor of next level love, it should impact you. When you realize just how next level the cross is and that a holy father would reach so far down for wicked sinners like us, we should be the ones saying, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon me. It should affect me. It, is, it should affect my commitment to Christ. It should affect my love for the Father. And if it doesn't yet, I want you to consider from this passage what next level love really means. And the first thing that I see that it means, this next level love, is that it makes us children of God. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God or the children of God. Listen, God's love, according to John 3.16, is the origin of His plan to bring us into the family through salvation. I look around the room and I, and I look at some that have adopted and they've brought uh, young children into their family and there's something so special about those that would adopt and they, they look at somebody, maybe at some child, and that child is at their lowest point, and maybe there's not someone there that can love them the way they need to be loved, and they bring them into their family, and there's something just so special, and something biblical, and something that's such a good picture of our Father in that picture of adoption. We have those that have adopted, we have those that have been adopted, and that picture is so good because if you're part of the family, listen, if you're part of the family, God looked at you at your lowest point and he loved you. If you're part of the family, you used to be the object of God's wrath. If you're, I mean, you used to be 
a child according to Ephesians chapter 2. It says we were by nature the children of wrath. You used to be the object of his wrath. God has no choice but to judge sin because he's holy. He's holy he's, and sin is unacceptable to him. Because we were in sin then, we were the children of wrath. We were the object of his wrath. But instead of choosing to pour out his wrath on us because of our sin, do you know what God did? God said, I can't stand sin. I must judge sin. But I will give those sinners an option And instead of pouring my wrath out on the children of wrath, I will pour my wrath out on my own son on the cross. That's next level love, folks. That he would look at me as a sinner and yet pour his wrath out on his son. And in doing that, he can take this rebellious, corrupt, vile sinner like myself, like us, and he can bring me into the family. What manner of love? If you ever get over the fact that you're a child of God, then you have lost sight of God's love. The Bible says we were at enmity with God. We were his enemies. And yet he loved us and he made us family. The Bible says we all fall short. We fell short of God's glory, yet he reached way down. I'm talking way down. He reached way down and he brought us close. The wages of our sin was death, and yet his son paid for those, that sin, and I get to be made alive. We are children of wrath. We were, and now I'm a child of a loving father. Listen, we're not, a, we're not adopted by force. We do make a choice, and let me just tell you this today. You can become part of the family, and I know I've already emphasized this today, but if you're not born again, you can become part of the family today. But God doesn't go through and select us to be part of the family. Now, he he selects everybody, but we make a choice. God wants all of us to be part of the family. He wants the family to be as big as the Mowers family. He wants us all to come. But he gives you a choice. And the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, For ye are, are, are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. See, all that God requires of us is to place our faith in his son and our sins can be forgiven and we can become his children. The choice is available to you this morning. Do you want to be part of the family? We'll make the choice today. But what I want to focus on this first point today is that next level, God's next level love, here's what it does first, it makes us his children. You talk about next level love. Love that can reach down past what I was and bring me into his own house. That's next level love. Next level love makes us as children. It also makes us different than the world. Look at verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Now when Christ came, you know the world, they didn't just not know him, they hated him. They, they did not know him as the Messiah. He came preaching things the religious establishment couldn't stand. They rejected him as the son of God. They totally missed it. His righteousness, when he came, his righteousness was, not, was also next level. Not just his love, but his righteousness. He did not fit in. He didn't have the, I mean, he had followers, but in the end, he didn't really have followers. He wasn't asking, they weren't asking him to come and, and speak to the Sanhedrin and to the, the, the Pharisees. The Pharisees hated him. They rejected him. They pushed back. 
because of his righteousness. His desire for his father's righteousness made him different. He made, it made him stand out. And what today's modern American Christian, and they, this may not be easy to hear, and it may not be popular in some pulpits, but what today's modern American Christian usually misses is the fact that if someone follows after God's righteousness, they will live a holy life, and it will not be mainstream. It's not going to just fit in with the crowd because God's way of living, God's righteousness is not popular. I mean, if we follow Christ the way we ought to, the world will not embrace us. We're actually told in John, again, I'm referring to a lot of his gospel writings today, but in John 15, he said, uh, Jesus Christ said, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. This is Christ saying, He's telling his disciples, if the world hates you, don't think anything of it. They hated me long before they hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you own. If you, were, if you were part of the world, they'd love you. But because you are not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. The servant is not greater than his, his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If, if I live, if we live according to the righteousness of our Father, the world will not be embracing us. They will not be hugging us. They'll not be inviting us along to enjoy the things they enjoy. As John says here in verse 1, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. If there's not a much difference between us and the world, friends, if we fit right in to where we're just kind of, we fit in and they know us and everything's cool with us and the world, it's probably safe to assume that we have not embraced the level of righteousness displayed by Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that we could reach that level. I'm just saying probably if I fit right in everywhere I go, if at work they see no difference, if I'm doing the same things they're doing, if I'm hanging out in the same places they're hanging out in, if I spend my Friday nights in the same spots that they do, if my speech isn't any different, folks, and I I don't want to step on toes, uh, ladies, if our dress is not any different than the circle around us, if our speech and our dress and our spirit and our countenance and the things we watch and the things we listen to and the places we go, if those things are no different than the world around us, then I can probably safely assume that we are not living to the level of righteousness that God intends for his people to live. And trust me, I could be preaching a lot more popular message this morning. It's not popular. No one likes to hear it. Because I know the pressure. I remember going to public school as a teenager and looking around thinking, I really want to fit in. I'd really like to do the same things the other kids are doing. And at times, unfortunately, I made some of those decisions. But when, I, when, when the circle of friends at school started to know me and embrace me and welcome me in, that's when I knew, well, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. Because I'm following my Savior. They're not going to love me if they hated Him, if I'm living righteously. And it's good for us to know that as good as God's love is, if we embrace God's love and we allow God's love to make a change in us and it makes us His children, then, then now I am obligated as His child to bear His family traits. I don't get to wait, live the way that I used to and the way that I want to. The world shouldn't know me as their best friend. 
Peter calls Christ a stone of stumbling. He calls him a rock of offense. In 1 Peter 2, the world can't stand Christ's message. For many reasons, number one, he's, Jesus Christ is pretty exclusive, isn't he? He says, I am the way. He doesn't say I'm one of the ways. He said, I am the way. I am the truth and the life. You go trying to preach that message in this culture where everybody says, my truth is just as good as everybody else's truth. I have my own truth. I can say what I want. I can believe my truth. Hashtag you be you. I've got my own truth and you have to respect what I believe as much as everybody else. No, then you come along and you say, but Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You go preach in that, in this culture, and you tell me how popular it is. Jesus Christ's message is not popular because it's exclusive. His message is not popular because it's also confrontational. John wrote in John 16, when he has come, the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It's a confrontational gospel. It's not easy. And you know what? You've probably been around family members that don't have the same standards as you. And to be around them is kind of tough. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to do anything. You just have to not participate in what they're participating in. And boy, it really riles them up, doesn't it? Because it's convicting. John says in verse 1, the world knoweth us not. God's love should do such a work in your life that the world looks at you and says... What country are you from? Not just what manner of love, but what manner of child. Where are you from? If the world looks at you and says, oh yeah, you're just one of the guys. Guys at work, if the world looks at you and says, just one of the guys, instead of what, what manner of man is this? Then it's time to probably examine our level of righteousness, our level of commitment how many family traits we have. Because according to 1 Peter, he, he doesn't say that if you're part of, the, part of God's family, you fit in. No, he said you're, you're a holy generation. Peter said you'll be peculiar. And he say, well, I got peculiar down, that's for sure. He says you'll be a peculiar people. You'll be a, a holy generation. He says you'll be strangers. He says you'll be pilgrims. The world should look at us and say they're not from around here. God's love should make that much difference in you. And I know this one isn't as fun. Because God's love makes us children. We're all, yeah, we're part of God's family. But if you're part of God's family, you have an obligation to reflect family traits. So the accountability comes in. If you fit in, I'm not sure it's such a good thing. Next level love makes us as children. It also makes us different. And, but finally, third, it will make us like him. Look at verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And I love this verse. John says, this one's a little bit more fun, okay? We got through the hard one. We're sons of God. Oh, now we have to be different. Oh, this one gets better, okay? So just bear with me here. John says, it doth not yet appear what we shall be. So follow here. We were created from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. It says God created man in his own image. But just two chapters later in Genesis 3, sin was introduced by Adam and Eve and that image was marred. Adam and Eve sinned and ever since then a sin nature has been passed to each of us. 
That broken nature has marred the image of God in us. So what should have been a very clear image, a very clear reflection of our Father, when sin came along, it hides all that we were originally intended to be. John says it, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. What that means is there's something that's not fully known yet. It doth not yet appear what we shall be. We're not completely there because we have a flesh. Now at salvation, if you've been saved, if you're part of the family, you were made alive spiritually. You take on the purpose then of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And this is where we start to really get into the focus of the message this morning. We start to become more and more like Christ. As I taught in Sunday school today out of the book of Philippians, Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and being made conformable unto his death. Your job, your goal is to know Jesus Christ and to become like Christ. If you're a child of God, you have one purpose in life and that is that you reflect Jesus Christ in your life. That's your one job, that's your one purpose. Paul said this one thing. It's your job. Unfortunately, though, as we try to reflect Jesus Christ, we have something working against it, and that is we have a broken nature. Our flesh doesn't want us to imitate Christ. Our flesh does not want us to be like Jesus Christ, and it will continue, our flesh will, continue to hide that purpose under a veil until, according to this verse, the future event that John's talking about. You see, he says, when Christ appears... We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And what it sounds like to me is that John is saying that the instant that we see Jesus Christ, the instant that he either calls us home through the rapture or he brings us home through death, when we finally see him, we will be like him. I'm excited about that. Someday I'm going to be like Jesus Christ. We will be transformed in that instant. And in that moment, we will be restored back into the image God intended for us at creation. John says we know it's going to happen. This transformation is both certain and instantaneous. Paul spoke of it this way in Philippians 3. He said, for our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven from whence also we do look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, right here. Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. So here's what he's saying. Paul is saying the same power that Jesus Christ uses to subdue nature and to subdue all things unto himself, that same power becomes available to us and at the appearing of Jesus Christ, when I finally see him, he takes that power and it says he will change this vile body into a body that's finally like his glorious body. And I finally get to be exactly what I was meant to be from the very beginning of creation. Amen. Well, that's amazing. I wouldn't mind a new body. I'm looking forward to that day. I'm looking forward to, um, as being part of the family, that someday that I get to, in a moment that I see Jesus, become like Jesus. If you're part of the family, I can tell you your future. When Christ appears, you get to be like him. We'll shed this flesh. 
We'll shed this broken sin nature. We'll get new bodies and we'll be restored to the original purpose that God had for us from the beginning. We'll be perfectly and sinlessly reflecting of his glory for the rest of eternity. That's our hope. Folks, that's our hope. See, do you ever grow tired of sin? Do you? Do you ever grow tired of not being able to do the things that you want to do because you're fighting your flesh? Do you ever feel the weight of knowing you should be one thing, but you're not getting there? Well, here's your hope today. Someday you get to be like Christ. You won't have to fight sin anymore. You don't have to struggle with some a thought life. You don't have to fight some addiction. And I wouldn't be surprised if in a room this size that there are folks in here that have an addiction that has you bound in your life. Well, someday when you shed this body and you see Christ as he is, he'll give you a new glorious body. And that which holds uh, its chains over you and binds you will no longer have any power over you. You get to leave that thing here. That sin, the weight of sin, the addictions, the thought life, the struggle, your flesh and broken nature someday will be done away with. And you say, I can't believe that's possible. And to that I say, behold, what manner of love. See, a love as next level as God's love makes that possible. And I read an illustration. There was a missionary. He was helping a native teacher translate 1 John into the language of the people that he was working with. And when the native came to these words, we shall be like him. That native scribe laid down his pen and said, no, I cannot write these words. It is too much. Let us write, we shall all kiss his feet. But the missionary said, it's not too much for the love of God. What manner of love? His love is so great that it can take each member of this vast family, past, present, and future, all members of the family, and transform them from broken sinners into perfect reflections of Jesus Christ. You talk about next level love, folks. It will restore us to our original design when Christ comes again. The point this morning is you have hope. We have hope. But the thought doesn't just stop there. See, God's love was never meant to simply inspire gratitude. Although we should be grateful for what he does, we should all, it, it's not just meant to inspire gratitude because lived out in its full expression, God's love is meant to inspire change. Remember at the very beginning, we said that a changed life is evidence of a new birth. It's evidence of God's working. Well, now we come down to it. We've talked about what manner of love. We've talked about the fact that it makes us his children, that it makes us different. We talked about the fact that his love someday will make us like him. Praise the Lord. But there should be evidence that this is true. You see, the hope that we have and that his love will make us like him, that hope should purify us. Look at verse 3. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. See, we shouldn't wait until that moment to prepare for that moment. You say, well, someday I get to be like Christ and I, that big moment, my biggest moment, I get to be like him and someday I'll be purified then and I won't have to deal with sin and I'll drop this flesh. I'll just wait till then. Until then, I just live it up. Okay, that's fine, but that's Gnosticism. 
It's hedonism that says I can do whatever I want to because someday this flesh will be gone and done away with anyway. Well, that's, that's fine if you want to do that, if you've been saved. It's not like we can take away your citizenship, but, but that's, that's a strange way to think about your biggest moment. I've got four girls, three of them are in this room this morning. From the time I can remember my girls down to each one, when they were really little, they would play and they would pretend. And one of the things they would always pretend that they were doing was getting married. From the moment, I mean, I remember my kids taking paper towels and making veils. You know, you, my, my wife talks about um, designing her perfect wedding dress when she was a little girl. You know, ladies in here, you probably thought about that. Why? Because that's one of your biggest moments. Now, if, you, if you're engaged and you're going to get married in, in six months, now some of you say six months isn't enough time to prepare. To that I say, that's crazy, okay? It should be. I don't know all that you're trying to do besides, you know, save the trees and save the wells and, you know, in uh, global warming. But six months seems like plenty of time. But you tell a, a lady that's going to get married in six months that she's going to get married in six months and she starts to panic right away. That's, that's not very much time because there's stuff to do. There's a dress to pick out and a cake to pick out. I don't know what else. Okay, so it takes six months. <laughs> I just showed up for my wedding, obviously. But see, a, a woman doesn't think about her wedding like a guy does. They start preparing early, don't they? From the time they're kids, they're thinking about it. Because the moment that, that young lady walks down the aisle in that white dress, I mean, salvation is a big moment in her life, but physically speaking, that's her biggest moment. And that's a big moment. And I, I don't want that moment to take place in my girls' lives, but if it ta- it's, it's fine if it takes place in your girls. I'm not ready for it. But you know, if I'm standing here and someday one of my daughters, the doors open back here and they walk down this aisle in a white dress, I mean, I will fall apart first. But I'm going to be thankful that they get to experience a big moment like that. That's a big moment. But you know what I I haven't seen, at least in most cases, is a, a woman knowing that she's going to get married six months out, they haven't done anything. Five months out, they've not started planning. Four months out, yeah, not yet. Three months two months, a month, a week before, they said, yeah, I've got to start getting some stuff together. It's not the way it normally happens because the moment's too big to wait. There's too much stuff to do before the moment comes. It's much too big to wait and you'd be a fool if you wait that long. But do you know what the biggest moment in your life will be? The biggest moment that you will ever face is when you finally see Jesus Christ. That's bigger than a wedding. It's bigger than your first job. It's bigger than your first child. These are all important. Your biggest moment is when you stand before him. That's your big moment. That's the culmination of your existence, friends. From the very beginning of creation, you were meant to be like Jesus Christ, yet sin has marred us for centuries 
For millennia, we've been marred by this broken nature. And, but, but in that moment, finally, in that moment when you stand before Christ, your whole purpose for existing will be fulfilled. You will at that instant for the first time shed this broken nature. You'll sh- shed this sin nature and you'll be standing before Jesus Christ. You'll see him in all of his glory and you'll have a new body like he has. When you see him as he is, you will finally be like him, restored to that image. And based on what John says, we only have a small glimpse of all that that means. But I can tell you this, there won't be anything as great as when you finally get to stand before Jesus Christ and fulfill your purpose of being just like him. And as great as it feels for a young bride to stand in her dress at the back of the sanctuary before she walks in, she's thinking, this is my biggest moment. I've been waiting for this my whole life. And it feels good and it feels right. When you stand before Christ, everything else will be lesser. And finally, you'll feel what it's like to not have a sin nature warring against your soul. Think of all the best moments in your life, your salvation day, your wedding day, your first child, when you graduated high school, when you got your first car, when you uh, are your retirement day, whatever it is. I think I can speak with authority except for the salvation day and say that when you finally experience Christ's likeness without that broken nature, it will surpass all other moments. You'll feel what it's like to fulfill your purpose. And yet, many of God's people are like a bride a week out saying, I better get ready for that. Well, here's how you get ready for your big moment. Verse 3 says, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. And you say, well, we can't be pure. We have a broken nature. I know we do. We can't be perfectly pure, but we're told to be like Christ. We're told to be holy as he is holy. We're told to be righteous because he is righteous. We're told to reflect him both inside and out. And even though we have a sin nature that fights against it, our striving to be pure is the evidence that we have hope for our biggest moment. If you spend months preparing for a wedding, but you skip purifying yourself for the moment you see Christ, you've wasted your time on a lesser moment. If you spend your life on education, getting ready for that dream job, And yet no time purifying yourself to be ready for your moment you see Jesus Christ, then you have wasted years. If you save your entire working career for retirement and yet you fail to make holiness a priority and when Christ comes you're not ready, then you've wasted a life. You prepare a house for a baby, you paint the nursery and you buy clothes and diapers, yet you ignore the call to purify yourself, you miss the biggest moment. Being pure means you're clean. It means sin is confessed. It means the strongholds are surrendered. It means you have a clear conscience before God. You've got fellowship. You're striving to be like Christ now in anticipation of that big moment. And John is saying this. Here's what he's saying. You need to clean your house before he comes. Family members, how clean is your house? You know, when company's coming, I'm not sure there's a more intense moment at our house. 6.55, someone's coming at 7. I mean, you would think we're, I mean, we're all on energy drinks, running around, trying to get ready because company's coming. 
You know, it's amazing. I think also when, when, de- when mom is telling the kids all day, you got to clean the house, you got to clean your room, or when dad comes home, and they wait and they play and they don't do anything all day, and then five minutes before I get home, mom calls downstairs and says, dad's going to be home in five minutes, and the kids who you would think had never been taught to clean before suddenly become cleaning experts, and in five minutes they take care of the whole job. It's amazing when they're motivated how well they work. But you know, that's a little bit how we are. You know, it would be better for my children to keep their room clean all the time so that if at any moment I drop in, they're ready for it. But a lot of Christians live as though, well, you know, once I know Christ is coming, I'll clean everything up. You don't know when he's coming. And I'm telling you, your biggest moment will be missed if you don't live purifying yourself. That hope should purify you. He is coming. There's a lot of family members, maybe even in this room, that have a lot of cleaning up to do. When Jesus comes, what will he find during his inspection? Will your house be clean? Will you be ready for your biggest moment? Or will you be ashamed at the condition of your life? See, there's a major indictment here as we wrap this up. See, the focus of this passage is God's love toward us and the difference it makes. And our preparation for when we see him is an indicator of our love for God. He loved us what manner. Yet often we love him eh, a little bit. If his love has made that much difference, we should gladly purify ourselves as we hope for that moment. If we don't, what manner of love is that? See, in the same way that the world doesn't get our Father's love, how can we who have benefited so much from his love not love him enough in return to have our houses clean before he gets here? What kind of love is that? His love has made a difference for you. Will you love him enough to make a difference in you? Let me ask you a few closing questions. Have you lost sight of how much he loves you? He loves you next level. What's your level of love for him? What's in your life that you need to purify and get clean? What is in your life that if he came back now, you'd be ashamed of? Purify yourself today, family of God. Because it's time to get ready for your biggest moment. It could come today. Get clean. Clean the house. Because he could come at any moment. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I appreciate your attention. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.